1: Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is producer Lan Lee welcoming you to today's Blue Barrel Conversation distributed through NBN. If you want to catch all of our episodes, you can search for the Blue Barrel Podcast. That's Blue the Color, B E R Y L, or find all of our episodes on PierceSalguero.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Blue Barrel, a podcast about Buddhism, Asian medicine, and spirituality. I'm your host, Dr. Pierce Salguero, a professor of Asian studies and medical humanities at Penn State's Abington College outside of Philadelphia. Today, I sit down with Waco Shannon Hickey, a hospice chaplain, scholar, and activist. We talk about Waco's early experiences with social violence in the 1980s. Her work as a Zen priest and chaplain, and her 2019 book, Mind Cure, which is a groundbreaking social history of religion and mindfulness in the U.S. Wako, it's great to see you again. We haven't seen each other in a while.
0: A long time.
1: And, um, but yeah, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing these days?
0: So my name is Wako Shannon Hickey, and Wako is part of the Buddhist name that I received when I was ordained as a Soto Zen priest. Wa means harmony or reconciliation. Ko means happiness or fortune. So Wako means something like harmony and happiness. My whole Buddhist name is Kakudo Wako, so studying the way or understanding the way, harmony and happiness. My present Zen teacher translated Wako a little differently as requiting the blessing. So I certainly don't live up to it all the time, but it's a good reminder to aspire to. I would describe myself as a scholar and an educator and a professional chaplain. And a zen priest and an interfaith activist
1: all right that's great that you made a nice list of things for us to talk about there i want to touch on all of those things and ordination in it's soto zen right is that
0: right that's right soto zen soto shu i'm actually ordained in the japanese denomination
1: okay yeah and was that something that you were interested in when you were younger or did that interest in zen develop in your adult years i'm curious a lot of people in our field using field loosely to describe people who are academics and in many cases scholar practitioners of some kind usually there's a backstory about how they became interested in those subjects and i'm just wondering if you could share yours with us
0: oh sure well i Grew up in the Napa Valley, which is where I am now, on unceded land of the Patwin people. And my parents were very conventional on the surface. We went to the Presbyterian Church, and my parents were both public officials, but they were very broad-minded and intellectually curious, and they named our cats after Hindu and Egyptian deities. And they read very widely in everything Alan Watts ever wrote and Krishnamurti and D.T. Suzuki and all of the kind of early popularizers of Asian thought in the West. And so I rebelled by becoming a fundamentalist Pentecostal Christian. (laughs) And I was very involved in, in a local church, but my parents had raised me to think critically, ask questions. And so that church actually formally shunned me when I was 15 for sowing seeds of discord. Wow! And and I showed up one day and no one would look at me or speak to me. And that was really devastating. And then I went off to college. And in my sophomore year, I transferred to UC Berkeley. And of course, there was everything to explore in Berkeley. And I was, my friend lived very close to a Jodo Shinshu temple. So I kind of was exploring there. My parents had been very interested in things Japanese. They went on a pilgrimage to Shikoku with John Blofeld. And so I was interested in things Japanese. And so I started attending this church. And ironically, what I didn't like about it was that it was too much like the Protestant churches that I had grown up in and left and what's ironic about that is that the buddhist churches of america in many ways adopted those changes in response to white racism anyway i explored a bunch of different buddhist communities in berkeley and settled into soto zen at the berkeley zen center and i was writing for the student newspaper at that time the daily cal i was covering politics And Ronald Reagan was running for re-election, and the Moral Majority decided to hold its conference in San Francisco the week before the Democratic National Convention. And I went to that conference and had a a life-changing encounter with Jerry Falwell and Phyllis Schlafly and the Moral Majority that created a kind of a crisis for me. And can I just tell you the story of what happened?
1: Please, yeah, definitely.
0: (laughs) Okay, so the Moral Majority had this convention in San Francisco as a kind of in your face to the LGBTQ community. And I show up there as a reporter and the two people who are with me are a fellow reporter who is a lesbian and a photographer who's a gay man. And I myself am not out to myself yet at this point, but I have friends who are lesbian and gay people. And we go to this conference at Union, it's a hotel in Union Square, and the most incredible array of police power I had ever seen up to that point. There were police on foot, and on motorcycles, and on horses, and a SWAT team, and metal detectors. And this is commonplace these days, but it wasn't in 1984. And behind this array of artillery were a lot of wealthy white people congratulating themselves about how they were right and everybody else was wrong. And I remember, in particular, a little brochure that they had displayed which showed a little blonde girl huddled in a corner with her ha- hands up over her head, screaming, and a big hairy arm hovering over her with an ax. And the title of this pamphlet is Murder, Violence, and Homosexuality. Hmm. And there's another version of this pamphlet that has a picture of a little boy, little blonde boy being dragged into a bathroom stall. And the content is that gay people are in a, a threat to society that must be neutralized. And so this really violent language is horrifying to me. And yet outside, the demonstrators are screaming, go to hell, well, go to hell, well. And if he had walked out the door, they would have lynched him. And the police were just breaking heads. And this was just overwhelming to me and I did not know what to do with any of this. So I went back to, Berkeley Zen Center and did a one-day retreat, and in those days they used the kyosaku, you know, this long wooden stick. If you wanted it, a monitor would come around and give you a whap on your shoulders with the stick to kind of help relieve the tension in your shoulders. Very startling sound, and when it happened, I started crying and I couldn't stop. So I went to the teacher who happened to be Dainan Katagiri, it's the only time I ever met him. And I said, I don't know what to do with all of this political violence. And he said, we can't scream and yell and holler for peace. If we want peace, we have to figure out how to be it. And that was a new idea for me at 19. So I took a semester off. I went to Green Gulch. I got really quiet. And at the end of my time at Green Gulch, I also, during that time, went through the process of coming out myself as lesbian. And at the very end of the time there, at the end of the day of a one-day retreat, the last period, I was facing the wall, and I had this image in my mind of a police officer that I had encountered that day in Union Square. And he he seemed like the antithesis of everything that I believed in. His riot gear, and he was shoving people around with a nightstick. That people weren't resisting, and I remember looking at him and saying, "How can you do this? You know, why are you doing this?" And his face was just stony and then for an instant the boundary between me and this guy dissolved and i and i understood that i was where i was doing what i was doing because he was who he was where he was doing what he was doing and that our lives were absolutely inseparable and that i had exactly the same capacity for self-righteousness as the people who horrified me and so for me that was the beginning of my zen journey And I later lived at San Francisco Zen Center for several months, and I worked as a journalist. And then I got involved in corporate training, but the company that I worked for went out of business. So I went to the Tassajara Monastery and sat down for five days and got very quiet and asked myself, given all the things that I'm good at and the things that I'm interested in, what do I want to put those things in the service of? And to me, the most helpful things I have encountered are the Dharma and the practice of of zazen. But I also realized in that time that I wanted to go back to school and study religion. And I wanted to do it in a place where I could ask questions about the Bible and not get in trouble. Mm -hmm. So I went to Pacific School of Religion and I also did major coursework at the Institute of Buddhist Studies. And the topic that I wrote about was sexual misconduct by Buddhist teachers because I had arrived at Green Gulch six months after Richard Baker had been forced out as the first abbot of Zen Center. And and although I really had not been around for any of those events, I watched for years as the organization just went through paroxysms in the wake of that event. And then also over and over again, there were scandals in the Buddhist community about sexual misconduct. And then someone very close to me was being abused, and I was powerless to do anything to stop it. And so I, I did this master's thesis exploring why that happens, how that happens, both the systemic and personal things that cause that to happen. And so I was also practicing at a little temple in Oakland, California, that is on the property of Gengo Akiba Roshi, who is the Sotoshu Bishop for North America. And he has this little tiny miniature Zen temple in his backyard that is absolutely exquisite. And I had been practicing there And I'm sorry, I'm going on so long here, but all of these things are connected.
1: No, thank you so much for telling this story. I mean, it's both horrifying, but also interesting to see how this intersection of on the one hand, the political violence that you saw in San Francisco taking you to Zen as your refuge, but then you found within Zen that there's also this violence taking place underneath the surface and how you're bringing sort of a, a critical activist kind of perspective to both the outside world and the Zen world, and I, I, what I'm saying is this is really both personally fascinating to hear how this affected you, but also I think it's very relevant and important to the activist scholarship that you've been doing more recently. So please continue and, and go into as much detail as you'd like to.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that. So during my, I think it was the second year, maybe it was the first year of seminary, my best friend from high school died. And it was the first death that I had ever been with. And he entrusted to me a number of tasks after he died to organize his memorial service, to write his obituary and give the eulogy and receive his ashes and make sure that they got scattered in the places that he wanted. And as I carried out those promises, I thought maybe he saw something in me that I did not see in myself. And so, I decided to explore chaplaincy so by the time i finished my coursework and my master's thesis i had also almost earned a master of divinity what i needed was a one more semester of coursework and a year of internship and so by adding the extra degree i did a year-long residency a a clinical residency as a hospital chaplain and then graduated with the master of divinity and then went off to my doctorate so my master's research was this comparative study of three communities along a spectrum from more to less monastic it was the order of buddhist contemplatives on the monastic end San Francisco Zen Center in the middle and the Zen Peacemaker Order on the non-monastic end, and I looked at how do they understand the role of clergy, how do they form them, what are their expectations, and I compared that to the kind of education I was getting in a Protestant seminary and to the path of Zen priests in Japan. And sexual misconduct was a major theme of what I was looking at and how various organizations did or didn't deal with that. And my most recent publication actually is an outgrowth of that original master's thesis.
1: Yeah, I noticed that you came back to that topic. And thanks for sharing all of the details that you have. I mean, it's really clear to me how your Zen practice, your scholarship, and your activism are all sort of like intertwining threads throughout your life from very early on up until now. So it's, it's really interesting to see how inseparable those currents are within your own life.
0: Right. And my chaplaincy experience was tremendous. I mean, I loved that work. And I was working mostly with cancer patients and adult inpatient psychiatric patients. And it was tremendous work, but I was on my way off to go do an academic PhD. And one of my advisors said, do you really want to spend the next five years continuing to think about sexual misconduct? And I decided I didn't. So I went in a different direction. But I worked as a chaplain all along. I was the first Buddhist chaplain at Duke University. And then in my second teaching appointment, which was in Baltimore, I was the Buddhist campus minister for Johns Hopkins University. But I kind of went the conventional academic route of teaching. And then my academic department was dismantled, and my father had died, and I realized that what I really wanted to do was come back to California, to my hometown, and so I did that. And shortly thereafter, got work as a hospice chaplain, and I've been doing hosp- hospice chaplaincy ever since. So that's the backstory. <laughs> Sorry, it's taken yeah. so long.
1: <laughs> no, that's that. Thank you for the for the details and for sharing all of that. I think we'll come back to talking a little bit more about chaplaincy and uh, what you're up to these days. I wanted to, before doing that, talk about your book. So one of the things that we're doing this season in this podcast is focusing on Buddhist medicine. This broad term refers to any number of different ways that Buddhists throughout history have been involved with health and healing practices of all different kinds. And a lot of the guests that we're gonna have on are talking about practices of Asian Buddhists and historicizing those. And we have some practitioners who are contemporary practitioners of Asian medicine that are inspired by or influenced by Buddhism and this conversation with you i think you're the only person we're going to have on who is talking about contemporary mindfulness in the west so one of the things that you know i'm really interested in is having you help us to contextualize the history of mindfulness in the u.s but to do it in in the wacko way and not in the stereotypical kind of like it all started with John Kabat-Zinn in 1979 kind of way, right? right. Um, so, so in 2019, you published your book, Mind Cure, How Meditation Became Medicine with Oxford University Press. And I feel like this is One of the most important books that I've read in recent memory related to the reception of Asian religions and practices in the US. And the book specifically looks at the history of yoga and meditation in the US. And I think pushes the timeline for that history much earlier than any book that I remember reading. And what you showed in the book is that that interest goes back to the 19th century. And what was really the most fascinating for me is how you show that it's really among women and people of color that meditation and yoga first become popularized in the US. And so I I just think that that's a revolutionary and uh, game-changing, paradigm-changing presentation of the history of yoga and meditation. So that's in two thirds of the book, and then the last third of the book, more or less is your critique of contemporary mindfulness and meditation movement. So I was wondering if maybe we could divide the conversation into two parts, where we first look at the historical part of the book, and then we'll come to talk about the critique in a moment.
0: You actually did a very nice job summarizing it. So what I found was that the first people to really express interest in meditation sort of therapeutically were middle-class white women who were associated with this 19th century movement called New Thought. And it's a cousin of Christian science. And very early on, there was a lot of overlap between the two. And these women Gathered at a series of conferences in New England called the Greenacre Conferences. And they were a continuation of the World's Parliament of Religions that happened in Chicago in 1893 in connection with the Columbian Exposition. It was that event where actual Buddhist teachers came and spoke to largely white audiences and, and made a strong impression. They were Swami Vivekananda from India, Anagarika Dharmapala, who was Ceylonese, and Shaku Soen, who was a Zen teacher from Japan. And they made a strong impression on their audiences, and they were invited by the leaders of New Thought groups to tour the country and speak to their congregations. And one leader of the New Thought movement organized these summer conferences for many years, Sarah Farmer, And they kind of were a continuation of the world's parliament. And D.T. Suzuki and Vivekananda and Anagarika Dharmapala all taught at at these summer conferences and introduced people to mindfulness of breathing and Raja Yoga. And it became part of the practice of New Thought communities across the country. And it was very successful. And this was happening at a time when mainstream medicine was using bloodletting and giving people mercury and cauterizing women's genitals. If they had hysterical symptoms, it was horrifying what orthodox medicine was doing and the mind cures, basically their basic belief was that if we tune in to the presence of the divine that's all around us we will experience well-being and abundance and not necessarily financial abundance although that was definitely that is definitely a wing of the movement but spiritual abundance and they were living also at a time when women could not vote, they couldn't own property, they didn't have custody of their children if they got divorced. They were living very restrictive lives, these middle-class white women, and the New Thought movement enabled them to develop careers as teachers and healers and publishers and public speakers and ministers that was really transformative and and essentially their idea was, if you can change your mind, you can change your circumstances. And that was a revolutionary idea that had not just spiritual or or physical consequences, but legal and political consequences. Many of these women were involved in social reform movements of, of the progressive era. So they were enormously successful, and when cholera outbreaks would sweep through the cities, the mind curers often caused fewer deaths than the orthodox doctors who were bleeding their patients to death. So they became wildly popular, and they became a threat to orthodox medicine and religion, which which worked very, very hard to suppress them. But eventually a couple of Episcopal priests and doctors set up a clinic and managed in Boston and managed to kind of channel some of the most successful mind cure methods, which included meditating on the breath or meditating on a word or a phrase or saying affirmations to oneself or doing visualizations, those kinds of things that they had learned from these teachers from Asia, these things get channeled into mainstream psychology and medicine. Psychology is just beginning to come to the United States in the early 20th century and this clinic basically is treating psychosomatic conditions using mind cure methods as well as sort of more orthodox methods and it is this pivotal group, the Emmanuel Clinic and the Emmanuel movement that it spawned is really how the shift begins to happen, that meditation and mental therapeutics move into mainstream medicine.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, thanks for walking us through that. And wanted to mention, because I like to mention other books too, that in 2019, Ira Helderman's book came out, Prescribing the Dharma. And I think he sort of picks up the story, maybe not exactly where you left off, but a little bit in the same general area where he picks yeah. up the threads of how psychologists then continued over the decades to engage further with buddhist meditation in particular that's so i'm book. i'm interested in i'm interested in how how do the african-american religious leaders fit into this story that you've just been telling us because that's another sort of i think a hidden layer of the history of meditation in the u.s that, that you unpacked and uncovered in this book
0: so one of the early and most important new thought leaders was emma curtis hopkins she had been part of the christian science church but she was expelled for expressing unorthodox ideas so she started a school and began a a seminary essentially a new thought seminary and began ordaining people as new thought ministers And those ministers went on to found the New Thought denominations, including Divine Science, the Homes of Truth, the Church of Religious Science, which is now called the Centers for Spiritual Living, and a Japanese movement called Seicho no Ie, and also a movement which is one of the largest and still operating today called Unity, which influenced a number of African-American religious movements, including the... Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, the Moorish Science Temple, founded by Noble Drew Ali, Father Divine's Peace Mission Movement, and which to me is the most interesting of them, the, and the Nation of Islam, Black Hebrew Israelism, and a more recent group denomination called the Foundation for Better Living. But the new thought denominations had in common with the African American movements I just mentioned is that they were focused on their communities. The white women were involved in all kinds of social reform movements, marriage reform and the temperance movement and a whole bunch of different social justice movements. And the African-American communities, these, these new religious movements were interested in giving people a sense of dignity and empowerment and creating self-sustaining communities during the height of Jim Crow. And so, you know, they were focused on, as I said earlier, changing your mind, the idea that you could change your mind and change your circumstances had very real legal, economic, and political implications for these groups. Father Devine's peace mission, for example, worked very hard uh, to promote anti-lynching legislation. And at one point, Father Divine himself ran for president. And he has gotten very little attention, but he was a fascinating figure, very heavily influenced by New Thought. And he, created an interracial movement across the United States that created businesses, gas stations, grocery stores, hotels, across the country that served black and white people during the height of Jim Crow. It was phenomenal. And he had, in although, on the east side of the Mississippi, most of his followers were black. On the west side of the Mississippi, most of his followers were white. It was it was an incredible movement. And trying to improve people's lives by changing the way that they think. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
1: What do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to download the new Bumble now. Yeah, yeah. And maybe this is a good place to mention that the last third of your book presents a critique of the contemporary mindfulness movement. And one of the things I hear you doing in that part of the book is really calling attention to how disconnected from social justice, the mindfulness movement has been in recent decades, in contrast with these earlier movements. So I'm wondering if if now is a good time to give us your critique of contemporary mindfulness.
0: Well, I think that in the transition from the early mind cure movement to the modern kind of medicalized mindfulness movement, three things have gotten lost. The first is that kind of communal dimension. Mindfulness training is really all about your individual response to stress. And I've been through the class myself and generally my experience of I've been through a couple of the classes, my experience is it's basically the teacher is instructing the students, but it's not really designed, it's not designed to create a sangha, it's a class and it's a fee for service kind of thing. And then what you do with it afterwards is up to you. Right. So it individualizes the practice and and what gets lost is community. Another thing that gets lost is the ethical foundation of meditation and yoga that are fundamental in their parent traditions. When MBSR was first being rolled out and part of the, the class is an all day retreat. Early on, they used to ask people to observe the five basic Buddhist precepts during the retreat, but that went by the wayside, and it really tries to present itself as a a secular kind of thing, even though it's deeply rooted in, in Buddhist philosophy and practice. And the last thing that gets lost is an ability to think systemically about suffering, because if it's really just our individual mindfulness or lack thereof, that is the problem, then we don't have to look at how things like racism and poverty and sexism and homophobia and all of those things affect people's health. So. I think those things have gotten lost. And I think that that's regrettable. I I think that teaching people to be more mindful is a very good thing to do. And it does not have to happen in an explicitly religious context. I do it all the time in my work now as a chaplain. But I do think that community and ethical training and a systemic analysis of suffering are things that we really don't want to lose track of.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Before we put off to a different topic, is there anything else you want to mention about your book or any other comments that you want to, to make?
0: I guess a couple, just a couple of things. In chapter five, I look at whether we could reasonably call the mindfulness movement religion. And I believe that it's it's really a species of what Catherine Albanese called, uh, American metaphysical religion. So I argue yes. And that has implications for teaching it in public institutions. Mm. So critics who say like Candy Gunther Brown has said that mindfulness and yoga should not be taught in public schools without informed consent about their religious dimensions. I don't agree with her entirely because I think she oversimplifies certain things, but I do think that she has a point that there are ways in which the mindfulness movement has obscured its origins that I find problematic. I understand why Jon Kabat-Zinn wanted to present his program in a completely secular non-sectarian way to gain acceptance in mainstream medicine i I completely understand that strategic choice and yet the mindfulness movement really is steeped in buddhist philosophy in in many ways and it is about cultivating loving kindness and cultivating self-compassion and mindfully eating things these are all things that Kabat-Zinn learned in, in explicitly Buddhist context. So there is a certain a bit of disingenuousness, I think. In Also, I think it is disingenuous to claim that the Dharma is somehow this universal thing and that he's teaching this, this universal Dharma that is independent of any particular religious tradition. It's his particular blend of the buddhist and hindu and other teachers who have influenced him
1: yeah i I just wanted to mention the title of candy gunther brown's book that you just mentioned debating Mm -hmm. yoga and mindfulness in public schools also published in 2019 and your argument also reminds me of yet a fourth book published in 2019, which is Ron Purser's Mindfulness*. So Ron Purser seems to have a rather dismal opinion about the mindfulness movement being sort of commercialized to the point of becoming like a fast food chain. And I'm wondering how you feel about whether there is a value to having this widespread popular form of meditation that's being practiced all across society by all sorts of different people.
0: So I agree with Ron Purser that the commodification of mindfulness is problematic. I, I think Alan Sinaki, Hozan Alan Sinaki, an American Zen teacher has correctly asked, is the mindfulness of a, of a sniper, uh, the same (laughs) as the mindfulness of a Bodhisattva. And if corporate, entities are having their employees practice mindfulness at the expense of looking at why they're so stressed in the first place and perhaps about the ethics of what their companies are doing that's problematic
1: definitely so one of the problems it occurs to me that one of the problems with this widespread commercialized mindfulness movement is presenting mindfulness to the public as something that can be beneficial for everybody. In fact, it's a panacea and it's going to cure all of your ailments and make you happy and wealthy and you'll have better relationships and the long list of things that everybody wants out of mindfulness and i think we both agree that that is overselling the benefits of mindfulness
0: you know as i mentioned earlier anybody who engages seriously in in any kind of meditative contemplative discipline is going to experience uncomfortable things and Meditation is really not appropriate for everybody under all circumstances. When I was working in a psychiatric facility, it was really important to keep people who were dealing with psychosis to stay grounded and aware in the present. And so we didn't have anybody close their eyes. We didn't have anybody do any kind of visualizations because they needed to stay focused in the shared reality so it was not appropriate for them it's not appropriate for some people who are deeply depressed because it can just feed their ruminations some people who are who have histories of trauma should not be jumping in deeply into meditation because stuff might come up that they're not prepared to handle and they need skilled therapeutic support for that. So Willoughby Britain at Brown University has done some great research, important research, on adverse effects of meditation, even among people who don't have mental health problems or mental illnesses, and even people who have relatively brief experiences with meditation. So if you're gonna undertake this discipline in any kind of a serious way, that's really important to work with someone who's very experienced at that, who can help you deal with whatever it is that comes up, and who knows when to refer you to other professional help if you get into an area that's beyond their expertise. You know, in my work as a hospice chaplain, one of the things I do the most frequently with patients or family members is teach them a basic practice that, I learned from Frank Ostaseski, who was the founder of the Zen Hospice Project, and it's called Mind the Gap, and it's about centering your awareness in your body, grounding your attention in the physical sensation of sitting or, or lying on whatever you're sitting or lying on, and then bringing your awareness to the breath, and then focusing on the space between the exhale and the inhale and imagining that little space, that gap as a place of rest where people can just sort of drop their concerns for just an instant and then the next breath comes. And I teach them that and I have them do it for just three or four breaths at a time. And then as they do that, they begin to notice that the little gap gets longer. And I remind them that they always have access to this little place of rest between every breath. And it's super helpful to people And I I don't present it in any kind of religious way, but it helps people ground themselves. And I taught it to a guy just the day before yesterday who was really anxious and disoriented and unsettled, and it helped him calm down and feel grounded where he was. That's a good thing. And I believe in the importance of spiritual communities, as flawed as they can be. And I believe in the ethical foundations of meditation practice. And I believe that we need to look at suffering in a systemic way.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you pivoted back to talking about your work as a chaplain. I wanted to come back to that and talk a little bit more about the types of benefits or the types of healing that you see Buddhist practice being able to provide people. And as you're speaking right now, I'm feeling like you are talking about mindfulness as a stress reduction practice, but it seems like you're, you're also suggesting a much deeper kind of healing that, that meditation can bring into the hospice setting. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that in your experience.
0: Definitely. definitely. The most important thing that I bring to my work as a chaplain is my contemplative practice. Because anybody who does sitting meditation for any length of time will find that it becomes uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable psychologically. It can be uncomfortable emotionally. It can be uncomfortable physically. Learning to be comfortable with my discomfort in a kind way without trying to escape it or make it go away or feed it is what makes it possible for me to be present with anybody else's discomfort without feeling like I have to fix it or make it go away or justify it. I can just be with somebody in their pain and confusion and not move. And that by itself is helpful and healing to people. That is the most important thing I bring and teaching other people how to be gentle with their own grief and distress because their ability to do that is also their ability to be present with anybody else's. Right. And that's how that is really deeply healing. And the Buddhist teaching of impermanence and interdependent co arising is so comforting to me. As I encounter death over and over and over again, because although death is absolutely real, You can tell the difference between a body that's dead and a body that's not. There is also a way in which there is no death. There is only change, only transformation. And so nothing is ever lost. And that's something that I can offer to my patients and my families who are grieving that even though bodies die, relationships don't, love doesn't, they just change. So I still have a relationship with my dead parents. They're just different relationships. And actually, Paula Arai has done some very good work on, on just this topic. So I want to give her a little plug, too.
1: Well, I'm glad about, you mentioned her because uh, we just interviewed her and she'll be uh, appearing oh, great. in a forthcoming episode. Bringing us back to, I think, the heart of the matter here with what you're talking about is how do we as human beings respond to this condition of life and death? And I was just thinking that I might ask you about your experience during COVID. I I can't imagine the challenges that you've had as a hospice chaplain during the pandemic. And I'm wondering if there are particular practices from your tradition that have helped you to navigate this really difficult time.
0: So I work as as a hospice chaplain and during the worst of the shutdown, I was working for an agency and covering parts of like four counties. And it was devastating for people to have their loved ones dying alone and in isolation. And I learned to give deathbed blessings over the phone and over Zoom. And that was really strange. It's definitely not the same as being there in person and being able to touch somebody in a loving way. And at one point I was in the emergency room and I was talking to the doctor who said that she, she has had experiences of intubating people while protesters outside were protesting vaccinations and, and other restrictions. And, and that was really that's really been frustrating and painful too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing with us. So at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about how the, your name Waco means harmony and happiness. And now at the end of our conversation, after hearing about your journey of sort of interweaving activism and Zen practice and historical scholarship, I'm wondering if you feel like you've arrived at some place of harmony between these different threads. Do Do you find that they've led you towards a fulfilling and happy life or are there still some tensions between those different threads?
0: Well, I really miss teaching. I'm glad, frankly, I'm glad I didn't have to try to teach college during the pandemic shutdown because I know from talking to my friends and colleagues that that was incredibly difficult for them. But I had my own version of that. And I really love being home in a place where I feel really deeply at home. I feel really connected to the physical valley that I live in, so I'm very glad to be back here. And I, what I love about hospice chaplaincy is that it is inherently collaborative. We have to collaborate, the nurses and the social workers and the health, home health aides and everybody. We have to work together as a team to serve our patients and their families and really put their needs first. And that is a very pleasant antidote to the kind of sometimes competitiveness and pettiness that can reveal itself in academic politics. You know, they say the fights in academia are so fierce because the stakes are so small. And I really love that collaborative work. And I, although in teaching, I definitely had students who would come back and say, hey, you really made a difference to me in some way. In the work that I do now, like pretty much every time I, I go see someone they feel better when they when I leave than they did when I showed up and and often it's just because I I gave them my full attention and really listened to them in a non judgmental loving way and affirmed what was good about them and it has I have served people who have said things that I profoundly disagree with both politically and religiously and so forth. And my job is to serve them where they are, to meet them where they are and love them and serve them. And that's a very powerful practice. And I'm finding that I can in fact interact in a loving way with people I profoundly disagree with. And that is so important today when we are so divided and so caught up in us versus them thinking sort of in our national polity. So I think those are all really good things. Working in healthcare, though, is hard, just like working in academia is hard, because it's, it's flawed, and it's limited. And it's problematic in all kinds of ways. But you got to find a way to serve.
1: Yeah. It seems like you've taken this interest in political activism, and making change in the exterior social, political dimension, and brought this into a really deep way of connecting with people. And it still, to me, seems to be very, very focused on bringing change and bringing about social harmony, but at such a deeper interpersonal level than probably you imagined yourself doing when you were 19 at the political convention.
0: I'm still, you know, I'm really involved in interfaith work and one of the nice things about Napa is that the fact that it has suffered multiple natural disasters fires and earthquake and flood and so forth means that there are many many local nonprofit organizations and there's a, a quite a vibrant interfaith community in town of clergy kind of across the religious spectrum who collaborate with one another. And I get to work with them also as a chaplain because I'm frequently serving their parishioners as my patients. And so, so that has been really fun. And I'm involved in an organization dear to my dad's heart, trying to preserve agricultural land in the Napa Valley. And I'm continuing to write. And I probably my next project is gonna be a book about my dad and about his role in helping to create the the Napa Valley that exists today.
1: Yeah, great. I was just going to ask you what's next. So do you have any other projects that you want to mention here?
0: I've had several book chapters published and there's one that's coming out maybe next year, I guess next year, about what I learned about white privilege and about racism from being the only Buddhist in a Protestant seminary for six years. It's a book of interfaith encounters that didn't go as well as hoped or expected, wow, uh, interfaith Encounters that Went Awry in some way. It's called With the Best of Intentions, I think is the, t- is the title of the book. Hmm. And that experience of being the only Buddhist in a Protestant seminary was really an awakening to me about, it was my awakening to white privilege and to racism that has informed my writing and my interests ever since. Yeah. So uh, that's the next thing. And then I'd like to write a book about my dad who was a county planner and a mystic and who had a very deep influence on my spiritual life. I forgot to say earlier when I was doing my youthful explorations after I got shunned from the Christian church, my dad gave me a copy of the Tao Te Ching and I copied it into a notebook by hand and it blew my mind because it was the first time I had ever been presented with a non-dualistic perspective. Mm. And and that was huge for me.
1: Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much, Vaco. This has been such a pleasure to see you again and to get to chat with you and to go in depth into your background and into your book. I think it's a like I said before, a really important intervention into the history of religion in the US and the history of mindfulness more specifically. And it's a, a great contribution, I think, to the field of Buddhist studies and women's studies and American religions, African American studies. I mean, so many different disciplines, I think, are brought together really successfully in this book. And you're telling just a a really important story for all of us to know more about. So thank you for doing that.
0: Thank you very much for letting people know about it. I'm, I'm really proud of it. It's really the result of 20 years of work altogether. So thank you. Yeah.
1: yeah, thanks for thanks for being here, Waco. I really appreciate your uh, coming onto the podcast and chatting with me about this. And uh, yeah, be well. And I hope to see you again very soon.
0: Yes, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Pierce. So thank you so much for the invitation and for the opportunity to talk about things that are near and dear to my heart. Yeah, and mine too. Yeah, thanks.
1: That is it for today from us at the Blue Barrel Podcast. This episode was hosted by Pierce Alguero and produced and edited by me, Lan Lee. All of our music is by Jonathan Pettit. If you're listening to us on one of our partner podcasts, make sure to catch all of our episodes on piercelguero.com or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also support us by making a donation at patreon.com slash blue Until next time, be happy be well.